collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Hello! Thank you for being here for another episode of Collective Power. Today, my guest is Wayne. Hi, Wayne. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this very much. I am too. And you know, I just realized I didn't really ask you how to pronounce your name. Can you say your last name for me? Armitstead. Armitstead. Okay, great. Um, an IT in the middle that most people forget. Absolutely. <laughs> So Wayne, it's really an honor to have you on the show uh, today. You're like one of those magical human beings that kind of plops in my lap when I least expect it. You had hosted me and a dear colleague of mine in your home while we attended a training some years ago. And I followed up a few weeks ago and found out that you had written a book. So, and your book is Perverted Capitalism. So I'm really thrilled to be able to talk with you given the really in-depth research that you've done on our economic system and what needs to change and where it could go instead. So thank you for being here. Very happy to be here. And I'll just reverse the name of that book. It's called Capitalism Perverted. Thank you for correcting You're welcome. So my first question for you is one that I ask almost all of my guests which is, tell us a story about yourself that would have us learn a little bit more about you as a full human being. Like not just as, you know, the academic studying and scholar, but also as, as a full human being. And if possible, a story that helps us understand why you care about this. Thank you. And before we go any further, I'd just like to tell you how much I enjoyed the first two episodes that I watched of this program. Uh, I was uh, from uh, Eric Real Ramos and uh, David, David Kaplan. Yep, David Kaplan. <clears throat> and um, first of all, I'm a Canadian. I uh, live now on, in British Columbia, which is on the uh, West Coast, but I was born in Alberta. Uh, in the United States, we, you would say that I would be a Midwesterner. In Canada, we'd say I'm a prairie boy uh, or a plains a person who lives on the plains, just to differentiate uh, from the West Coast and the uh, rest of Canada. I was uh, spent most of my early years on a farm, so I know what work is and I know what entrepreneurship is because farmers are probably the most entrepreneur people in the business in any business and uh, 
I was there for 18 years, 17 years, and my final uh, year of, of school I spent in the uh, largest city closest to where I was born in Edmonton. At that time, university wasn't really a goal for very many people. I chose to do that, and I didn't know what to take, but my parents coming through the uh, depression and the tough time said, well, all you have to do is make sure you get yourself a good job, and the only job that I really know that was professional, besides a doctor, was a teacher, and I went into the faculty of education, and I became a physical education teacher. After five years, I had two degrees, phys ed degree and a education degree. And I went out into the world of teaching. And I did that, first of all, in a rural community. And then I, first year, and then I went into Edmonton and taught at one of the largest high schools in Edmonton. I taught there for three years. And I lasted a very short period of time in teaching physical education because I really enjoyed the sciences. So I taught chemistry, physics, and biology. Did that for three years and decided that, uh, as young people do, I know more than other people, and therefore I should try to do better things or more things. And so I went back to grad school and went into educational administration. So after that, after taking that degree, I got a job as a, a vice principal of the biggest high school in Whitehorse, the only high school in Whitehorse, which is in the Yukon. I was senior vice principal there for a year, and then I became a principal of a school in Alberta, uh, 525 students, 27 teachers, three vice principals, really good stuff. I really enjoyed it tremendous time there, but I really believe that a person shouldn't spend more than five years in any particular school because you get complacent, and I think that education is so important that one should move around and take challenges and do different things, and uh, over the next uh, 15 years, because I spent about 20 years in the profession, I taught completely in the Yukon, British Columbia, Alberta, and Australia. I taught in Australia for two years. Wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> Could you tell us a story about maybe your experience either teaching or as a vice president that links to why you chose to write this book? It has more to do with my second career than it does with the first. Although the aspect of it that would would uh, coordinate with education is that I basically am a teacher. I basically try to tell people what's happened either historically or my take on something. And also I'm a, a bit of an optimist and I think that uh, I try to make good things happen. I try to make uh, the world a better place and therefore try to get solutions to problems that there might be. So as far as my education career, the only thing that probably did was uh, teach me to be a little bit organized. And uh, certainly organization is required to be a, an author. I learned that because I have never been, prior to that, I've never written anything particularly significant. 
But anyway, after that, I started to do some investing in the stock markets and uh, got very interested in that, decided that that might be a challenge. And so I switched my profession from being a school teacher and administrator into being a stockbroker. And I did that for a few years until I really decided that what I liked to do was to analyze things more than sell. And so I started my own business as a portfolio consultant to wealthy clients. And uh, basically I did that for 30 years. How does the stockbroker and then portfolio analyst become the writer of capitalism perverted? Like there has to be a story there. I want the story. There is because when you see things that happen, you say, now, why did that happen? And is that the best way to do it? Or is there a better way to do it? And, uh, you know, one of the things that has always amused me about the investment business is that everybody has advice to give to people who want to invest, but they charge fees for the advice. They don't charge fees for the return. And it always seemed to me a little bit strange that you wouldn't want to do what the client wanted you to do, whether that be to have growth or to look at uh, tax savings or to look at retirement or whatever the purpose was, and to set up the procedure in that fashion. And that's basically what my business was. I charged a very small fee, if you like, a very small amount to cover my costs. And then my basic income kicked in based upon how well the client did. And that to me seemed a fair way to do it. And the clients loved it. They knew that I had their best interest at heart. They didn't question, have any questions about my motivation. And so, and that's the way I liked it. And I did that. Until 2010, and I can tell you that now we're coming to the point where why did I write the book enters the picture. So shall I answer you? Sure. Tell us a story of why this book. Okay, well, uh, if you follow things through as to what happened, I was present when the, the one-day crash happened in 86, I believe it was, where the stock market in the United States dropped 25% in one day. And we had ups and downs, booms and busts, market uh, moves in various ways until eventually 2000 came along and it was me uh, and to a lot of other people, it was obvious that we were in a bubble a bubble of uh, dot-com stocks. And to give you an uh, example of what happened, the NASDAQ moved from a price of $5,000, the index was at, at around 5,000. And by the time it finished after that crash, it was at 1,000. So it had dropped basically 80%. To me, that was not surprising that that happened. In fact, I took a fair amount of heat from clients who said, you know, we've got to get into this. this, is, this. And I, I kept saying, I'm sorry, 
I can't advise you because I don't think these are good things to happen. After the fact, they were happy that we had done what we were doing, but they were sorry that the big move in those stocks. Then, of course, what happened, we had the housing crisis problem 2007 to 2009. And I thought we were going to get a different result from government action. I thought that what would happen is that governments would realize that there was a serious problem with the financial system. Instead of letting capitalism take its course, they stepped in to save the banks from their own profligacy, excess spending, and so on. So at that point, I said, I'm going to do some research to find out exactly how the financial system has changed over this period of time. But what I really wanted to do is to find out how we could correct it. And in the course of that research, I came across a fellow by the name of Hyman Minsky, an American economist who I think is brilliant or was brilliant. And he, in my opinion, said things and wrote things that was going to solve the real problems that there is with, with capitalism. And so part of my book is using his ideas, spreading his ideas out so that people could have a look at it. And that's why I have written this book. I think it was important to get a background to it and then to tell people what needed to be done. Could you tell us the economist's name one more time? Hyman Minsky. Last name M-I-N-S-K-Y. We have heard a lot in the last few years to uh, Google a Minsky moment. It's almost a catchphrase. It's very unsatisfactory as an explanation. But basically, a Minsky moment uh, explains the tremendous amounts of credit that go out there and create problems. Well, I really appreciate like that, the amount of time, like how long did you study before actually releasing the book? I knew quite a lot, but I had to, uh, to get some figures down and to make sure that I had evidence for my thoughts. Well, it took me about two years to write the book and it probably took me three years to do the research. So the last five years I've spent working on this book and, uh, as an unknown author, without a couple of PhD degrees in economics or finance, I'm going to have a lot of trouble finding a publisher to uh, do that, uh, to publish the book. So I self-published it myself through a Canadian company. And um, I have it out on Amazon at the present time, and it's available for purchase on Amazon. Beautiful. So tell us a little bit about the book. It's a three-part book. The first part is a very brief history of changes that have occurred in the financial system. And when I say changes, I mean major departures from the previous operations of the financial system, major departures. To give you an example of one of the major departures, we no longer use gold as an arbiter 
or currencies. Uh, we do not use gold in international trade. It's been dispensed with simply because the banking system can't do what they want to do and uh, rely upon the value of gold. So they have avoided it. They have changed it. And of course, this has been caused by governmental action as well. So those are the kinds of things that have changed. The other thing is, is that we have operated on what is known as a, a fractional reserve system of banking, where banks that loan money must keep a portion of the money back and allow somebody to look after it or to keep it so that if they get into trouble, there are funds there to prevent runs on banks and the bankruptcy of banks. Well, essentially, banks have learned to get around these features. And so that has created an enormous amount of credit, which has in turn allowed a tremendous amount of debt because debt and credit are opposite sides of the same coin. If one person has credit, they must have gone into debt to achieve it. So another portion of the financial system has that. So these are, this is the yin yang, if you think, if you like, of the financial system. So one of the things that you talk about in your book is the rise of the super rich and the lobbying impact on politics. Um, since we just came out of an election, can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, two things. you mentioned two things. You mean the rise of the super rich and what? And the lobbying impact on politics. Okay. Okay, the rise of the super rich. Let's start off by going back before the super rich were present. And when I say super rich, if you look at Thomas Piketty's book, and this was mentioned by Eric in his talk, Capital in the 21st Century. If you go back to the 1850s, the level of inequality was tremendous because of the landowners. The landowners had tremendous amounts of income and the workers and other people did not have it. Over time, that inequality became less and less until at the end of the Second World War was the most equal part of inequality that ever happened. And now, from 1945 until this point in our history, we've actually gone back to the point where our inequality is worse than it was in the 1850s. So how did that happen? Well, it happened for, for two reasons. Number one, the incomes of certain groups became higher and the taxes became lower. Now, if you work at both of those things, you'll see that there's a significant change that would take place. When Eisenhower, when President Eisenhower was the president in the United States, I use a lot of information about the American system because until fairly recently, the American system of finance and government was the leader in the world. And we'll come to probably another question that you have about that a bit later on. But when that happened, President Eisenhower was president, there were 24 tax brackets 
A tax bracket is a level of, when you're in that level, you have to say a certain percentage of your income as taxes. Well, there were 24 when President Eisenhower was president, and the tax rate, the personal tax rate at the highest level was over 90%. And that's nine zero. That's nine zero. Now you say, well, how can that possibly? Why would somebody be taxed that much? And the reason why is that nobody's earning that kind of money in a job. That kind of money comes from other sources. That money comes from investment revenue or major inventions or patents or all sorts of reasons why that, that taxation should be at that, that level. But it's not for the individual person. I mean, an ordinary person is not going to have a 90% tax rate at, at the highest level. So what it does is it redistributes. And this is a word that people hate to hear. But what if, if you go back to Adam Smith and read The Wealth of Nations, he talks about taxation in the same form. If you earn more, you should pay more because governments are responsible for doing a number of things that individuals cannot do. And what a government is, it's elected by people to do things for everyone. Now, am I chattering on here or making any sense to you? No, absolutely. But say more about, so it was understood that a 90% taxation for the highest bracket was reasonable, I'm just repeating a little bit what you said, was reasonable because it was understood that governments would do what privates couldn't do, yeah. right? So that means like, if you're earning a bunch of money from a foreign source or from old wealth or stocks and so on and so forth, or even from like a factory, they're still, you know, the government Government providing people to get to the factory, <laughs> the government's providing, you know, transportation and water so people can wash themselves before they get to your factory. So basically, you're paying to some extent for the infrastructure that it takes for you to continue making exactly. the profit you're making. Exactly. So it's all those things, but it's also the fact that when businesses are involved in whatever business they do, whatever the industry is, to make sure that they aren't doing things that counter what other people want. They disadvantage other people by whatever they're doing. And for example, pollution. I can tell you, for instance, right now in, in the province of Alberta, which is a very heavy energy, oil and gas area, there are tremendous numbers of old wells that need cleaning up that corporations are not doing and the province of Alberta government is going to have to do it because they've polluted the system and have not cleaned it up. And this is the sort of thing you have to have regulation. So where are the tax brackets and the highest percentage now? How many tax brackets do we have now and what are the highest percentages? Well, different jurisdictions, but generally there's about six. And uh, in some cases, 
the highest rate might be less than 30%, certainly less than 50%, even if you pack in all of the costs. So basically where this took place in the United States was when President Reagan was the president. And there was a theory, and this was mentioned by David Kaplan, I believe, a theory called trickle-down economics or trickle-down finance. And the idea was if you reduce the taxes, you will leave the money in the hands of wealthy people, and wealthy people do know what to do with money, so they will build industry, corporations, provide employment, and everything will work out much better than if they had been taxed higher. Well, the theory is good, but it's false. There is a wonderful book that you might look at. It's called Dark Money. It's written by Jane Mayer. And she basically traced the rise of political action committees, PACs. So tell us a little bit more about like what can be done, right? What can be done? What are the insights and the approaches that you offer in your book about how we can get out of the boom and bust? Where do we go from here, given the ups and downs that we're constantly experiencing? Well, the only way to do it is politically. Because right now, the power is in the hands of wealthy people. But before you can get political, you have to understand what's happening. If you don't understand what's happening, you have no way of changing the system. And what you have to do is say, what is it really that people are trying to have or do or how they're trying to live? Or what is the best way to have a society that is genteel, that is pleasant, where benefits accrue to everybody, not equally? And in the last few years, what's really happened is that we've done a lot of things that benefit corporations, corporate executives, but don't do anything for the general public. And some of those things are, for example, offshoring jobs. Corporations are moving offshore, providing industries in other countries, but leaving their own citizens short. Yeah. Tell us about some of the solutions that you had mentioned were also government actually creating full employment. Tell us a little bit about that. Let's go back a little bit because we have to uh, go back to the late in the 19th century and early in the 20th century in the United States, as well as in other countries, there was monopolies. They were called trusts and federal governments busted the trusts, trust busters, by breaking down, there were railroads, there were steel companies, there were oil companies, there were banking. A lot of companies were basically monopolies and as a consequence of that, they were earning a disproportionate amount of income from their businesses. And trust anti-combines or antitrust legislation came in and reduced the amount of 
combines that there were and trusts that there were and uh, made industries much more conducive to benefits to all uh, citizens. And of course, this reduced the amount of consolidation that there was in businesses and governments are needed to do that. Could you give us an example? Okay. A more modern example is the breakdown of, if you remember, Bell's were the Bell telephone company was broken up into about six or seven different divisions and, and forced to compete with one another. Well, this was an example of trust busting. Now, there is no such thing as trust busting. If uh, some, a large company, for example, in the high-tech industry sees a competitor come in who might take some of their business, rather than allow that to happen, rather than allow that company to continue, they will buy it. They will take it over. Yeah, they'll purchase it. And yep. they will purchase it. And it becomes part of their operations. And so now they can, again, I'll give you another example of what's happening. The stock market has been on a tear this year, 2020. It's up, particularly the high-tech area is up. But if you look at it, about five companies are responsible for over 50% of the increase in the stock market, in the S&P 500. The amount of consolidation of power the corporations is, is, is unbelievable. And this is one of the things that this is of the four uh, reforms that Minsky suggested. One was a reform, uh, reduce market power of corporations. He had several ideas on what he could do there. But the other thing is, is that what he would suggest is that there should be as much power in government as there is in corporations. Generally speaking, you can say that about 60% of an economy is consumer-led. Central banker, the, the head of the, Central, uh, the Federal Reserve, he basically said, we don't want to regulate. The market is quite capable of looking after itself. Until we get regulation, this is going to continue to do what we're doing so how do you think we could shift this conversation around regulation? Because regulation is really the word, right? Like it's the word that has as many people vote kind of conservative and Republican as we have, right? It's this whole piece around government regulation and the perception that government regulation means less freedom. So how do we shift that narrative? Okay. There is very much resistance to regulation, but it's not everywhere. Like if you look in a place like Denmark, for instance, the equality there of income and wealth is probably the least dispersed in the world. It's very flat. They have free education, free university, free medical, these are things that are regulated and they are the government oversees. But there's another aspect to this. There's something called entitlement. And you know what? There is no such thing as entitlement. And people who don't wear masks say, I am free to do what I want. I don't have to wear a mask. 
Well, you do have to wear a mask because it keeps other people safe. Maybe you're content to get COVID-19, but maybe your neighbor isn't. You can't have entitlement. There's a certain thing that you have called responsibility. And these are the things that we don't operate always in the same way that other people do. And this is what we have to start thinking about. We have to start saying, you know, we are free to do what we want to do as long as we don't harm somebody else. You can't drive on the left side of the road in the United States of America. So don't tell me you're entitled. How do we do it? By making certain that things that are done are for the greatest benefit of everybody, not necessarily one person. And this, these are political decisions that have to be made. You aren't entitled to do whatever you want in terms of pollution, in terms of whatever, anything. This is something that you must. So Wayne, where do you draw hope in this picture? Like, where do you draw, I don't know if it's hope or confidence or strength to keep going. Like, where do you draw your next step from? I draw it from young people because they are starting to understand where they are going and what's happening to them. Do you mean now, they're starting to understand that the game is rigged? The game is rigged to a certain extent. It isn't rigged. It's well, I suppose I suppose it is, but it's rigged if we allow corporations and wealthy people to have their way. And right now they are. Look at a guy like Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a great guy. He's making lots of money, but you know what? He's spending it properly. He spends an enormous amount of money on health care systems, on education, not only in the United States, but all over the world. If you are good enough and wealthy enough to be able to do that, he's probably better off to do it than give it to the government because he's probably able to determine where he can make his best effort. I don't have a problem with that, but I do have a problem when there is wealth that is just wasted. It's wasted on individual benefits that don't help the world. That David was talking about, he was talking about what happens when people receive money. When poor people receive money, they buy the things that they have to buy. They buy food shelter, clothing, health care, those are the sorts of things. And they spend all their money doing that. And it's called the marginal propensity to consume. That's the economic term for it. If you're wealthy, you have more money available to buy the things that you like to choose or to save it or to invest it. And the more that you do that, the more that you save and invest, the more the money accumulates. And that's exactly what's, what's going on. So we have to get more money into the hands of the consumers so that they have a chance to have some of those things that they're able to, the necessities of life, I like to call it. 
So it's fascinating to have this conversation with you because in part because you're Canadian. Like how does that either sharpen your analysis analysis or change your analysis? Like okay. what's similar, what's different? Because you know, we just went through four years of who we had. So, yeah. you know, I'm curious, like how does being Canadian kind of shape the way you look at this? Well, it, there's a lot wrong with the system that we have, too. We have a lot of inequality of wealth and income. Uh, we have what's called a, a public health care system. But the public health care system doesn't work as well as we would like. And one of the reasons why it doesn't work as well as we would like is that right now we're spending about 50% of tax money on health care. Health care costs are going up because we are getting better machines, we are getting better treatment, we are getting better pills, we are getting better, better, every, everything that you can think of, we are going to be able to have people live to maybe 110 years old. But the point is, we can't afford it. I like to say that we have an illness care system. We don't have a health care system. We have an illness care system. We look after people who are sick instead of preventing that sickness from starting off. And how do you stop that illness? Well, you first of all, you make sure that they have good nutrition. The second thing is you make sure that they're fit. The second thing is that you make sure that they don't do things that are going to compromise their health in various ways smoking, alcohol, and so on and so forth. There should be what's called a limited amount of money available or a certain amount of money available for the common causes. When, when the Canadian system first started, we would have free childbirth, bone breaks, appendix, all of the things that happen that are emerging is the sort of things that you can spend. But two triple bypasses and the person goes back and smokes and drinks afterward. This, these are the sorts of things that you have to stop. You have to prevent because these are actions that individuals take that are bad for them and for the system. So there has to be a limited amount of things that can take place. Right now in this country, in Canada, we're trying to put in a pharmaceutical that's just going to boost costs again. And we're running out of money as it is. We have a deficit this year. Of, we're going to have a deficit this year of close to a trillion dollars because of the COVID. You can't keep spending that amount of money. And this is the other thing that I mentioned in the book. I really talk about the, uh, the debt that is out there. I talk about things like, why are we spending so much on um, militaries? These are problems. Serious problems. And we can stop that if we can get cooperation between countries. I have another beef. It's really a very strong belief that the United Nations doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons it doesn't work is because there are five countries that have a veto. So the Security Council, if a veto from one of these five countries says, no, we're not going to do that, 
that shuts down that whole operation. And that is wrong because two of the countries shouldn't even be in there. Britain and France shouldn't even be there. If anything, Japan and Germany should be in there because their GDPs are bigger than those other two. And the reason that they aren't in there, of course, is that the United Nations was set up after the Second World War. And Germany and Japan were belligerents. Anyway, the book has got lots of answers. But uh, we haven't asked enough questions. Wayne, it's been a pleasure to have you today. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, my final thought is, what do we really want? What do human beings on Earth want? They want security. They want freedom from wars. We have 70 million refugees in camps. That's just incomprehensible. We have poverty. We have people on the street. We have people without homes. We have criminals. The other thing we have is we have, we have tax haven. Tax haven. Can you imagine having tax havens and the world hasn't done anything about them? I mean, what are tax havens? Tax havens are places where criminals go to launder money. They are where arms merchants go to get do the deals that they get into third world countries to create hardship and allow demagogues to control their people. I mean, it's ludicrous. There's a book that in the course of my research that I did called the Panama Papers. They, they reckon there are $3 trillion in Panama alone. And there are tax havens all over the world. If you eliminated the tax havens, you would have cash immediately to reduce the, some of the debt. And the other thing is that you would prevent tax slippage. Wayne, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, I have and a how do people sign buy your book? And buy the book and uh, and please start getting political. Start seeing where the problems are. Education is tremendously important, and I would love to see teachers be rewarded a little bit more. But I would also like to make sure that they're accountable. And, and this is the other of it. You have to have accountability uh, in government. You have to have accountability in industry. You have to have accountability as a citizen. Thank you for being with us today, Wayne. I'm excited to have you next week come back with our uh, other speakers from this month, which are Eric Murillo Ramos, Matt Burkhold, and David Kaplan. So I'll uh, talk with you next week. I'm looking forward to meeting them. Thank you very much. Rita, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. 
If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.